very warm welcome to all of you, um, particularly on behalf of British Government at LSE, um, under whose auspices this lecture is happening. And if you'd like to know more about British Government at LSE, the person to talk to is Tony Travers, who is sitting in the fourth row from, from the front. So, um, so they will tell you um, more about um, the other activities of British uh, Government at LSE. Um, can I make the usual request, please, to turn off these things? Um, they, um, they interfere with, um, with the um, equipment, and obviously they do go off. Um, that's um, quite embarrassing all round. Um, although, on the other hand, I'm also um, asked to draw your attention to the, um, the hashtag to use if you're tweeting. Um, these tweets tweet <laughs> silently. I'm not quite sure the point of tweeting silently, certainly if you're a bird. Um, could you use the hashtag um, hash LSE welfare? Um, the last time I saw that hashtag uh, being used um, was back on 1st of December when um, Liam Burns' opposite number in Duncan Smith um, was um, talking here. Um, we have until 7.30 this evening, um, so there will be time for questions and short comments, not speeches please. Um, in the question and answer session um, afterwards, so that I think there's going to be plenty of time for that. Um, Liam said he'd, he'd cut his speech down from the two hours he started <laughs> with um, into true Cuban style. Um, um, as you all know, um, Mr. Byrne is currently um, Shadow Secretary of State for Work and Pensions. Um, given the bill that is currently going at varying speeds through the House of Lords, um, today. Um, this is obviously um, one of the hottest of hot seats um, to be in at the moment. Um, he brings to this evening's topic his experience um, as Health Minister in the last government, um, within the Cabinet Office working on social mobility, um, and of course as Chief Secretary. Um, but I think some of you will have seen the article he wrote that was published in The Guardian a couple of weeks ago um, on um, a new beverage, a new William beverage, of course here at LSE, given that beverage was our former director, uh, was our director at one point, um, that's always something that makes our ears uh, prick up. Um, and he's going to be enlarging on those themes um, this evening. So we're all very much looking forward to that, particularly as I'm afraid perhaps your greatest claim to current fame um, is the candour with which you um, express yourself um, particularly um, when handing over to your successors at the Treasury. Um, so we're looking forward very much to you telling it to us as it is, given, <laughs> given the huge pressures that all of these issues are under, not just because of public spending um, issues, but because of the growth of poverty and inequality in certain respects that we're facing in the wake of the crisis. So there couldn't be a better moment for us to be thinking about these issues and there couldn't be a better person to be leading the discussion this evening. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Right, excellent to see you. I'll try and sort of speak sort of quite quickly and rattle through the text um, that I've got because I want to start very quickly by saying a huge thank you to the directors uh, and to the students and to the staff of the Department of Government uh, for inviting me to speak here tonight. Uh, there is no better place than here to begin a series of speeches to mark the 70th anniversary of the Beveridge Report. Uh, as John said, William Beveridge was a distinguished, if difficult, director 
of the LSE. I hear sometimes that can happen. Um, it, in fact, it is said that he tried to run the school as an autocracy, and he only gave way when the staff mutinied. I don't know if that still happens here. Uh, but one young lecturer said of him this, said, Lionel Robbins, in fact, said, I doubt if it ever occurred to him to regard the great men of those days as his equals, let alone his superiors. Well, somebody once said it's better to be arrogant and right than humble and wrong, and I think the fact that we're here tonight, marking the 70th anniversary of this report, tells us that William Beveridge did get an awful lot of things right. Now, all good anniversaries prompt a bit of self-reflection, and this anniversary should be no different. So I hope that in this year, we can begin to debate how we go back to Beveridge's first principles and ask ourselves, how is it that we can apply those ideas and those ideals to the changed world of the 21st century? And I suppose at the outset, I should declare an interest. The practical idealists that led that 1945 administration are the political leaders whose tradition I am part of. They're practical idealists, leaders like Bevin, like Morrison, like Attlee. They were the leaders who fashioned the welfare state into which my parents were born, a welfare state that educated them, that gave my father, the first in his generation, the chance to go to university. Uh, they were the people who created a welfare state that inspired my parents with the ethos of public service in which they spent their careers. It was a welfare state that founded new towns and new places like Harlow in Essex, where I spent many of my formative years, surrounded by the architecture, the schools, the health centres, the libraries, the art and the ideas that were born along with the welfare state. Without that influence, I wouldn't be here talking to you tonight. So, what of the report that we celebrate this year? The story, the tale of Beveridge's famous eponymous report is rightly widely known. The key events took place 70 years ago this year and it is said that Beveridge wept when he was appointed to the task. Uh, he wanted to be in charge of manpower on the home front in order to help defeat the Nazis. But Ernest Bevan, who was his minister at the time, was told in no uncertain terms by his officials that the man was impossible to work with. So Bevan recommended him to Arthur Greenwood and Greenwood asked him to run his inquiry into social insurance. And Beveridge did not take long to seize the moment. So over the first nine months of 1942, he took evidence from 127 individuals and lobbyists and pressure groups. By April, home intelligence, as it was then called, was reporting that Beveridge's ideas of an all-in social insurance scheme were very popular. In the May, the Labour Party passed a resolution calling for one comprehensive scheme of cash payments uh, for emergencies and family allowances and for the NHS. By July, Beveridge had unveiled his five great giants to the uh, Engineering Employers Association. And by the summer, he had struck a deal with Keynes to get Keynes support by promising to keep initial expenditure down to just £100 million a year for the first five years. And then finally, after a bit of toing and froing within government, from dawn on the 1st of December 1942, the BBC began broadcasting details of the plan in 22 different languages. Timing 
as they say, is everything in politics. And Beveridge's timing was perfect. In November 1942, the Allies had just defeated Rommel in the Battle of Egypt at El Alamein. They had counterattacked in Stalingrad. They had just secured uh, the landing bases in Guadalcanal in the Pacific. It was not, as Churchill said on the 10th of November 1942, it was not the beginning of the end, but it definitely was the end of the beginning. And so interest in what the country was fighting for hit a new high, and that interest just swept the beverage report off the shelves. 635,000 copies of that paper were sold. It was the most popular government publication until the sex and violence of the Profumo report in the 60s. And 86% of people reading the report said that it should be implemented. Uh, the Guardian called it a big and fine thing. And so with the publication of the plan came the debate about how to turn ideas into a reality. Now, John, I know that here at the LSE, your motto is to know the cause of things. But your tradition is not just about the search for truth. It is also about the search for action. Because ideas alone are nice, but ideas with action can change the world. And it was crucially as 1942 gave way to 1943, the Beveridge Report was connected with a powertrain of action, the mainspring, the animating force, the force of full employment. Full employment was what would become the foundation on which the report would be delivered and without which it would have just proved a dream. Now, Beveridge's first research had actually been into the challenge of unemployment. Back in 1909, he published a big treatise called Unemployment, a Problem in Industry. In the 1930s, he was still researching the trade cycle. But by 1938, just before the war, he was basically just a free trade liberal on the question of unemployment. Um, the, one of the founders of the Fabian Society, Beatrice Webb, said his answers were simply lower wages. That was his kind of answer to how you would deal with problems of unemployment. But it was the war years that were to foster a very different kind of answer. Now, the Cabinet didn't discuss the Beveridge Report until January 1943, and Churchill wasn't there at the time. He was actually in Casablanca. But before the Cabinet met, Clement Attlee told the newspapers that social security to us must, can only mean, socialism. He minuted Churchill to say that planning for Beveridge has to begin, and had to begin straight away. He said this, I'm certain, he wrote, that unless government is prepared to be as courageous in planning for peace as it has been in carrying on the war, there is extreme danger of disaster when the war ends. Mere preparation of paper schemes, said Attlee, was not enough. But as the cabinet concluded, there was an intense debate about the extent to which a war-fighting government could make peacetime plans. And the Parliamentary Labour Party, as it sometimes does, was determined to force the question. So in February 1943, there's a big debate in the House of Commons on <coughs> the Beveridge Report and its implementation. 97 Labour members of Parliament rebel against the party line and vote against the coalition government. And in his last vote, David Lloyd George, 
voted to advance the welfare state that he had helped to create. So by 1943, in March 1943, Churchill relents, and he gives the green light for the powerful Reconstruction Committee to be set up, with, as he put it, a solid mass of four socialist politicians of the highest quality and authority. And it was here, here amongst this group of politicians, that the fusion between beverage and the idea of full employment really begins to take shape. Now, Churchill added that the four members, Attlee, William Jowett, Herbert Morrison and Ernest Bevin, were working together as a team. That would have been a comment that made Attlee smile. Morrison and Bevin, quite famously, hated each other. But they were both enthusiasts for the plan. Beveridge himself began to take a very close interest uh, in the committee's work. After the report, after Beveridge's report was published, the war economists that were in the cabinet office began looking at what a Keynesian solution to the challenge of unemployment might look like. And they presented their ideas to the Reconstruction Committee in January 1944, and it was now that Ernest Bevin, supported by Hugh Dalton, begins to drive through the ideas that would become the famous white paper on full employment in 1944. Bevin himself was a powerhouse on the Reconstruction Committee. He misses just six out of 98 meetings. And his interest in this question of full employment was practical and very long-standing. So from late 1941 and 1942, Bevan had begun thinking about what Reconstruction was going to look like after the war. And by the end of September 1942, he had begun to sketch out the bones of a post-war industrial policy, which drew together the progress and the policy of the war years. So by April 1943, Bevan had begun exploring what unemployment relief would really need to look like. And interestingly for current debates, he said to himself and to his officials that once unemployment rises above 8% as it is today, that's the point at which the unemployment fund would start to creak. So Bevin's approach was straightforward. Once unemployment went north of 8%, Bevin said it was a situation that called for emergency action. It was a situation demanding the state use other means to provide work and stimulate employment. So in other words, Bevin, by 1943, is beginning to imagine a world in which full employment and social security are two sides of the same coin. So in April, Bevin goes to the Scottish TUC and he says this. He says the beverage report has got to be set within a wider picture of employment, of wage standards and housing. And he says, what we are doing is to bring the whole of this thing together and try and fit it into one blueprint or plan. In 1944, the keystone of that plan was published. Bevin publishes the white paper on full employment, which famously declares in chapter four, the government are prepared to accept in future the responsibility for taking action at the earliest stage to arrest a threatened slump. And he does a joint press conference with uh, the man who's quite a reluctant chair of the committee, Lord Walton, and Bevan says this, today, this plan just leaves the 19th century behind. And it says, in effect, that instead of human beings having to fit himself into an exchange system, the exchange system has to fit in with human requirements. Bevan presents the white paper on full employment to the House of Commons a week after D-Day. And he's roundly attacked by his own backbenchers, but he is not knocked off course. 
By the end of 1944, a white paper, and then a bill, and then a ministry, are created to take forward the idea of social insurance. 1945, Labour's manifesto says that there has to be a policy of jobs for all, arguing that production must be raised to the highest level and to create with the proceeds social insurance against the rainy day. Finally, at 3.48 in the afternoon, on the 6th of February 1946, the Minister for National Insurance, Jim Griffiths, gets to his feet in the House of Commons to move the National Insurance Bill be read a second time, replete with its first clause. Every person who on or after the appointed day, being over school leaving age and under pensionable age, shall become insured under this Act. The Beveridge Report was passing into law. Now, when Jim Griffiths moves the National Insurance Bill for a second time in the House of Commons, the place that he began his speech was with Keir Hardy, the founder of the Labour Party, the man who 51 years previously had stood in the House of Commons, a lone figure in that parliament, as Griffiths said, and insisted on the principle of work or maintenance. Hardy's election address had plastered all over it, work for the unemployed, Useful work for the unemployed was the call of the party's first manifesto. 30 years later, work is still at the heart of Labour's message. The devil's decade of the 1930s, the mass unemployment in the industrial regions of Britain, the memory of soldiers and sailors on the dole, inspired a new generation of Labour politicians and thinkers like Jay and Dalton and Durbin to wrestle back the ideas of Keynes and refashion them into this agenda a full employment that would be championed by Bevan in government. Generation after generation of Labour's leaders have campaigned for jobs, organised the unemployed and argued for full employment. Think of Red Ellen Wilkinson at the head of the Jarrow Crusade in the 1930s. Or years later, Michael Foote leading the People's March for Jobs. The campaign for work has always been Labour's first priority. But what is sometimes forgotten is that Labour's leaders match the argument about the right to work with an insistence on the responsibility to work too. So right at the beginning in the Webb's minority report on the poor law, the Webb's argued for two principles. On the one hand, the principle that we are our brothers and sisters keeper, but on the other hand, that progress in life has to be earned. Balancing those two principles is one of the reasons why any debate about welfare is so darned difficult. But the Webbs in their report actually said that there should be the toughest of action on those who could work but refuse to work. Uh, indeed, Beatrice Webb at the time wrote to her sister, we must have behind all this goodwill and expenditure the element of compulsion and disciplinary supervision of the persons who are aided. In the 1930s, Attlee actually sounds a similar note. He says, a socialist state cannot afford men to remain idle. In the 1940s, just after the Second World War, uh, Herbert Morrison, who's a great champion of beverage, says to the Labour Party conference in Margate, we have no hands and brains to waste and no resources to fritter away on those who don't contribute to our common effort. Let us point the finger of public scorn at those who make themselves comfortable at the expense of the whole community. Now today, we would not and I would not use the language of the Webbs or the Morrisons. But I would insist on one principle, that the responsibility on government to foster full employment 
must be matched by the responsibility of citizens, if they can, to take a job. Labour has always been the party of hard workers. The clue is in our name. We called ourselves the Labour Party for a reason. We are a party of work and mutual endeavour, an idea that is part of our history, our tradition and our philosophy. We are the party that believes that a life of community makes us richer. But we are always the party that has believed that if we want rights, then we must ask for responsibilities too. We were born with the notion, as a party, we were born with the notion that we become free citizens, not simply by taking it away, but by putting something back into civic and political life. And because we're a party that was born in working communities, we know that community life doesn't come from nowhere. It comes from people giving something back. Now, David Marquand, in his rather majestic book, Britain Since 1918, he divides our political history and the camps within it into four. The Whig imperialists, the Tory nationalists, the democratic collectivists, and the democratic republicans. And it's the democratic republicans, argues Marquand, who share much of the collectivist concern for equality, but he says they were for fellowship and dignity more than economic equality. They put their faith in the kinetic energy of ordinary citizens. This is the tradition that stretches back to the levellers in the 17th century and the Paynites in the 18th century. It's the tradition that was defended by English philosophers like Milton and Harrington. It's the tradition that argues that free states bequeath freedoms to citizens, but for a state to remain free, free of dogma, free of dictatorship, it demands citizens cultivate the crucial quality which the English Republicans translated as civic virtue or public spiritedness. This was the instinct for a greater degree of self-government and self-organisation that produced the 19th century tradition of political change that was the crucible of the labour tradition. As Jeff Mulgan put it not too long ago, during the 19th century, while some were marching in the streets, others were trying to create a new society based on mutuality, reciprocity, freedom and equality. Owen, Charles Fourier, Etienne Cabet, Horace Greeley were among those who inspired and, in cases, created utopian communities. This is the tradition of ethical socialists like Tawney, who rejected any desire to live in a Fabian paralytic paradise, as he put it, but argued instead for a country of fellowship. This is the tradition that argues that if we are to gain our freedom through membership of a great club called a free state, then it is wrong to see that membership as a free ride. Membership comes with a fee. It means, as the Chief Rabbi Jonathan Sachs put it recently, belonging means giving. It involves responsibility-based culture of respect, not a rights-based culture of complaint. The philosophy, Quinton Skinner, recently put it like this, unless we place our duties before our rights, we must expect to find our rights themselves undermined. And this is the modern insight of communitarians like Etzioni, and its conclusion is simple. We believe in freedom, but we believe that a free society demands not just rights, but duties too. A duty to look after each other in dire straits, but a duty too to do our bit. Not just to take, but to put back. Now, today the Conservative Party, I think, offers us a very different kind of approach. Back in 1942, just to go back a bit, 
I think it's fair to say that with some honourable exceptions like Quinton Hogg, the Conservative Party were not rushing to embrace the Beveridge report. In fact, a secret committee of MPs came to Churchill to argue for a very different kind of approach. Uh, their chairman, Ralph Asherton, accepted children's allowances, that was good, and contributory pensions, that was good too, but he wanted privatised health insurance and unemployment insurance substantially below wage rates. Now, I say today we hear a modern echo of that Conservative Party down the decades. Tonight in the House of Lords, they're doing their best not to renew the beverage settlement, but to bury it. The welfare reform bill tonight strips away contributory benefits for the sick and for those with disabilities. It strips away almost all benefits for modest savers. It strips away safeguards against homelessness. In truth, it is impossible for the Conservative Party to offer a meaningful account of the renewal of the welfare state because they simply don't believe in charting a course for the full employment that you need to pay for it. Sometimes when I listen to the rhetoric of this government, I am reminded of Ronald Reagan and his attack on welfare queens 30 years ago. Reagan was a man who was determined to dismantle Lyndon Johnson's great society. And in 1976, he told a story about a woman from Chicago's South Side who he alleged had 80 names and 30 addresses and 12 social security numbers and was claiming social security and food stamps and welfare under every alias. Reagan never named her, but his myth inspired a movement that started with a call for responsibility and ended by ignoring every cry for help. Reagan's attack on welfare queens ended with the biggest attack on the measures to promote equality in American history. We have to hope that this government will not repeat Reagan's mistakes, but I have to tell you, the signs do not look good. Last year, the Chancellor offered us an autumn statement that revised up unemployment by over a quarter of a million, put £29 billion on the welfare bill, locked in place a plan that the Institute for Fiscal Studies says will wipe out a decade's progress in reversing and rolling back child poverty. That isn't just irresponsible politics, that is irresponsible economics. Because the result is now a squeeze on people's tax credits and help with childcare and university bills and travel bills and an attack on the most vulnerable people in our society. This morning the Resolution Foundation warned it may be 2020 before living standards for most people recover, yet the wealth, wealthiest in our society will continue to race away. What is starting as a call to responsibility is fast becoming a deaf ear to cries for help. So let us just be clear about how expensive this no jobs plan has become. Tonight I share with you a new analysis by my team of the DWP's accounts for the next few years. And it is shocking. It shows the sheer scale of the failure to get our country back to work. Over the course of this parliament, housing benefit is set to soar by three and a half billion. Incapacity benefit and its successor is set to soar by three and a half billion. Unemployment benefit is set to soar by a billion. Tonight the House of Lords is debating a cap on household benefits. It's an idea we've said that we support in principle. We put it in our last manifesto, but only the Tories could propose a cap on benefits that doesn't actually bring down the benefits bill. And they fail, quite simply, because they're not pushing people into a job. They're simply pushing people into a corner. Cutting benefits while doing nothing to find people work is not going to get this country back on its feet. Worse, it's now clear the work programme is running into serious difficulties. 
New analysis published by Labour tonight shows that the rate of people flowing off benefits and into work over the last quarter of last year is the lowest since 1998. The work programme is not working because welfare to work doesn't work without jobs. Anecdotal evidence is now piling up that contractors are taking the easy wins, they're doing too little to help those with difficult needs get the work that they might like. And second, there are now real worries about universal credit. Again, an idea we support in principle, but there's now red lights flashing warning signals that this plan is not on track. And that's why my colleague Stephen Timms has written to the Public Accounts Committee, asking them now to investigate. So this is now my argument. On this 70th anniversary of the Beveridge Report, I believe it is a political duty to think anew about how the welfare state must change. Change for new times, change for new needs, but I believe that the lesson of the 1940s is the lesson of Attlee, of Morrison, of Bevin, that full employment and a strong welfare state are two sides of the same coin. So if we want to renew the welfare state for the 21st century, we've got to think about what is the new path back to full employment. We know the welfare state has got to change. It's got to change because the world's changed. The job for life has gone. The workforce is highly feminised. We sold off all the council houses and we forgot to build any more in their place. Our society is ageing. All of these things need, mean that people need different things from the welfare state than the things that they needed in 1942. But if we want change, change has got to be paid for. Paid for by people who work. And the lesson of Labour's history, of our tradition and of our philosophy, is that the right to work has got to run alongside the responsibility to work too. Now, a week or two ago, a very prominent political observer and columnist, who you will have read, and who I won't name, said to me, it's not your job to think of new ideas. It's just your job to oppose. Well, respectfully, I differ. I think that the job of oppositions is to do both. So that's why we argue so hard for Labour's five-point plan for jobs and growth, because welfare to work needs work. So shortly ahead of the budget in March, Ed Balls, Hilary Benn, Chucka Ramuna and I will be wanting to hear new ideas to help get people, especially young people, into jobs. The truth is this government is actually weakening responsibility now to work. So we're saying, well look, what are the ways in which the responsibility to work should actually change for the future? We think something very simple. We think that if you can work, you shouldn't be allowed to live a life on benefits. So as we explore new ways to create jobs, we'll look at new ways to enforce the responsibility to work if, and only if, you can. Let me draw these remarks to a close. If one man made a reality of Beveridge Report, it was not a civil servant or a minister, but a Prime Minister, Clement Attlee. And he was a man who learned his socialism in the East End, not far from here, a place where in his words he said, I found there was a different social code. Thrift, so dear to the middle classes, was not esteemed so highly as generosity. The Christian value of charity was practiced, not merely preached. He was soon to be alarmed at his first Fabian Society meeting. Seeing a platform full of men with long beards, he whispered to his brother, have we got to grow a beard to join this show? But when he was campaigning to become Prime Minister, 1945, Attlee's appeal was rooted in that community that practised what it preached. And to a war-battered nation, 
in one of his final election addresses, he said this, We call you to another great adventure, which will demand of you the same high qualities as those shown in war. The adventure of civilization, An adventure where all may have the duty and the opportunity of rendering service to the nation, everyone in his or her sphere, and that all may help to create and share in an increasing material prosperity, free from the fear of want. As we mark this 70th anniversary of the Beveridge Report, as we mark that milestone in the progress of our country, and as we seek now to plan a different kind of future, I think those are fine words to guide us. Thanks very much for listening to me. Um, well, thank you very much indeed um, for um, a perspective that's taken us back to our own roots as well as to the roots of um, the social security system we have today and um, in some ways maybe some of the problems uh, that it faces as well. Um, there are a lot of different ideas in that, maybe also quite a lot of um, questions which in this first of your three speeches you mentioned um, not necessarily spelled out in, um, in full detail. Um, I think we'll take uh, a number of questions, uh, maybe three questions at once. <coughs> so please, over there, and then, um, then if you could take them in, in those groups. All right. Thank you. Um, <coughs> John Young, my question is about the health service, because I think the creation of the NHS yeah. was almost certainly the biggest single achievement if we wanted to do a market. Now, my question is quite simply this. How do you feel that Beveridge would address the issues that we currently face, namely, that is, of, of people living for a much longer age and with medical technology leaping, uh, going by leaps and bounds, and bluntly, how are we going to pay for what we expect from our health service? Yeah. Thank you. And could you... Um, could you um, to remind us who you are. Yeah, Paul, Paul Kelly, head of the government department, LSE. Um, I, I thought your talk was fascinating. I'm, I was minded having reread Josie Harris's um, biography of Beveridge, the early part. Beveridge was concerned with the problem of casual labour at the very beginning. So the issue about work um, and one's obligation to take it, in, in Beveridge's thought, is a little more ambiguous. Yeah. And what I heard um, in your, in the sort of ideas part of your, it's very much about obligations and um, you know, the virtues of, of you know, fellowship and citizenship and all of these kinds of things. And I, and I, I still hear a certain amount of supply side talk. And, and yet when you, you mention full employment, I mean, some of that has got to be as beverage thought demand created so you know I'd like a little bit more about um, you know what has to be done on the on, on the yeah. you know demand management side of the full employment story and not and 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 then how one sees the coercive or the educative part of of the story as well if you could pass that just diagonally no in front of you ah, and then we'll take another round off uh, Mark Haggard, epidemiologist from Cambridge. Um, complementary question to the last. Um, uh, if you're talking about creating full employment, i.e. job creation schemes, 
which don't all have a glorious history. Are we talking about infrastructure projects? The, the people whom we would like to give jobs to are not going to be making my next computer in a globalized world. So what are they going to be doing? Building Crossrail, HS2, keeping the streets cleaner? Yeah. Uh, what? I think it, it's nice to have um, had an uh, indication of openness to ideas from all sources for the next round. But um, I would hope that you and the colleagues you mentioned also have some concrete ideas on these points. Yeah. Great, great, great. great. Uh, let, let me sort of start with um, Paul's question and, and, and work outwards. Um, so what really fascinated me kind of re researching the story of beverage um, over the last um, six months was this point of history when 1942 gives way to 1943. So it's it's that fusion that happens on the Reconstruction Committee between the ideas of beverage um, and the kind of driving powerhouse of Bevin, who is already sort of thinking <coughs> through what does full employment mean? How can we, you know, learn the lessons of the Devil's Decade? And I think you see, it's at, at that point in 1943 and 1944, in the run-up to the White Paper on full employment, that you really begin to see what's a very labour account of how the welfare state gets translated into, into reality. And that's when the ideas of a liberal, of beverage, are kind of fused with the ideas of a chap who's a very kind of English socialist. And that connects beverage with a tradition of full employment that actually happens to marry two traditions. One, a campaign for the right to work, but two, a reasonably tough-edged argument around the responsibility to work too. What I think is then fascinating about the white paper uh, on full employment, published in 1944, is that it starts with a chapter on the global situation. And you know, even back then, um, you know, policymakers are, are realising that a trading nation like Britain ain't going to get back to full employment unless there's a global settlement. If there's, you know, unless there's a kind of new deal for the world economy, which Keynes is busy fashioning in uh, uh, in Bretton Woods, um, and then a range of um, measures for the kind of national economy and then um, micro measures too. And in a funny way, I mean, after the Marx question really, I mean, that's what we've kind of got to go back to. As a trading nation, we're not going to get back to full employment unless there's a different kind of global settlement. And it's why you know, we consistently call for the G20 to prioritise uh, global growth. Uh, there are some allies for that argument in the IMF, um, more than uh, there were now. Um, that has to be married, I think, to something else, which is another interesting echo of 1944, which is that Bevan talks a lot about basically what we would call today industrial policy. So it's not just about Keynesian demand management, he's also obsessed with the challenge of Britain's industrial regions and how government intervenes in the planning system and in the procurement system and in the licensing system to help shape the nature and dimensions of the economy. Well, we're having a very similar debate now about industrial policy. How do we invest in infrastructure? How do we coordinate procurement and regulation and investment policy so that the sectors where we are strong are strong enough to grow and create jobs? And I think what is really interesting right now on the left in Europe and in America is that we're having a debate about how you marry together two things. An industrial policy that begins to bend the shape of the economy on the one hand and deliver you a better, richer supply of better paid, better paid jobs that are higher skilled with a welfare policy that helps you maximise employment. And in particular, maximise employment by freeing people 
to work the hours they might choose with policies like social care and um, child care. So what you're seeing is a very different political economy that is born from quite a sharp critique of where the third way went wrong. And what has been the most striking thing, I mean you get to learn quite quickly that there is nothing new in politics, but what has been most striking is when you go back to those debates of the, of the 40s and, and early 50s, and you just see how many of the questions about how, you know, as Beveridge said, how you maximise earning power, how you minimise interruptions to earning power, how those debates are running alongside you know, what was the right kind of industrial policy. Now, you'd be pleased to hear I'm not planning to go back to kind of wholesale nationalisation, although I guess we do now own the banks, um, and sort of masses of sort of new regulation and planning rules. You know, the industrial policy of the 21st century could be very different to the 1940s, but it's striking how many of the echoes are similar. And really, I mean, that sort of comes to your question, really, about how you expand the NHS. I mean, I said sort of en passant, really, that great things have changed since 1942. Uh, the job for life is gone. Um, the head of HR at Marks and Sparks the other day told me that, um, well, by the time many of you are my age, you'll have done 18 different jobs. That tells you that the welfare state has to support people, skilling and reskilling. You know, the fact that 50% more women now work than when I was born means you need a childcare system that is much bigger and better than the one we've got right now. You know, we need new answers on social housing. You know, we need a social care system. Uh, we need much fairer and more equitable distribution of savings, of incentives to save for the long term. So I think that the way that you begin to fuse together social care and the NHS in the future, the way that you allow some of our most powerful health actors like hospitals to integrate into home care, for example, is a really important way in which the health service will um, not just provide care around the clock and around the corner, um, but in which you'll begin to see a, a different kind of health system emerge. But the only way you can pay for that is if you've got a high growth, high employment economy, which genuinely gives people, no matter what their kind of background or instinct or ability, you know, the chance to work. Kate Jenkins in the Government Department. Um, I was very interested to hear you talking about um, the creation of more jobs. Um, I spent an early part of my career in what was then the Ministry of Labour stroke Department of Employment. And what strikes one very forcefully listening to the debate now is the absence at the centre of a real grip on what is happening to employment and unemployment and about the reskilling of, um, I mean, the, the situation of young people in this country is unbelievable. I mean, people have been complaining bitterly about the 1980s, but at least there were massive training programs running, and I see nothing of that kind, of anything near that, um, that process going on at the present moment. So how you fill both the policy and the information and the supply of practical experience gap that there is in the way government is structured at the present moment, yeah. I think is a very serious question. If you look across what's the, the division between the business department and the um, Department of Work and Pensions, there really isn't anything even remotely mm. of the intellectual or research substance that there used to be, just simply to tell one what was happening and how to respond to it. That's very interesting. Uh, please, first of all, I'm Callia Franklin and I'm a disability rights campaigner. Um, 
And I'd like to ask William some specifics on what do you mean exactly by full employment um, and what specifically will Labour be doing to protect those who can't fit into that model, uh, not just those who are too sick or disabled to do any work, but those who are in the middle ground in between. Hi, uh, Benjamin, I'm a government student at LSE. Um, whilst you're giving your speech, the Bishop's Amendment to exclude child benefit from the cap uh, succeeded, it passed. Um, I was just wondering what you think Beveridge would say to the government's benefit cap. Great question. Um, right, I've got to start with Kate and uh, rationalise on that. So, the challenge of um, Whitehall, I think, is a really profound one. Um, I, um, I, you know, I worked with some incredible civil servants, um, and I, I worked with many who weren't so incredible. And I was, I guess, I became really worried about you know what you describe as a, this hole in the centre. And I, the best example is perhaps the work that I started on living standards in two thousand and nine. So today. You know, the parlance about the squeeze middle is kind of common currency. Um, it was only when we started um, a team at the Treasury in 2009 that we really began to see the problem um, that confronted us. And it was incredibly difficult to pull together a cross-sectional picture from lots of different departments about what was going on. I was very surprised about government's inability to integrate that kind of policy analysis and then connect it with prescriptions. I mean, uh, I did a, an event this morning with David Laws, um, who succeeded me at the Treasury. And uh, we've both actually, you're, you're right, we've both actually joined forces. So we've both um, joined the board of the Resolution Foundation. And the work the Resolution Foundation have done um, on kind of mapping living, what's going on with living standards and why and what you do about it, you know, the analysis they produced in the, in the last six or seven months. Um, in some ways was miles ahead of some of the analysis I saw um, in government. And so, you know, Gus O'Donnell did a lot to, you know, hire economists and other basic things. Um, but my goodness, I, I do think, as, some, as someone whose family has served in public service pretty much for all of their uh, careers, and, you know, my brother is a civil servant, you know, I believe in the ideals and the ideal of uh, civil service. But it's behind the game right now. And we worry a lot in the Labour Party at the moment about whether the civil service has got the skill set to sort of think through some of the challenges on uh, industrial policy and welfare uh, state reform, and crucially, marry the two of them together so that they're not kind of pointing in kind of different directions. Great example, you know, we provided free childcare for 15 hours. Tax credits don't kick in until 16 hours. So, you know, I have constituents who come to me, women, who say, look, I'm giving up work because actually my tax credits don't cover my childcare bills. You know that, that kind of inability of government to kind of join things together um, is just um, is just too weak. So uh, you know if they can't, um, if if there is a challenge in developing policy ideas like that, then I think that there is um, real difficulty in relying on government to answer Talia Franklin's question because you know although. Labour sort of reached towards some of this agenda with ESA reform um, in our latter period of office. 
I guess looking at it, I don't feel that we evolved the kind of services that <coughs> people with disabilities genuinely need in order to live a free and fulfilling life that they were ambitious and entitled to live. And I think the failure to develop back-to-work services was a big part of that failure. And so you asked me for specifics on what Labour would do. I'm not going to offer them because I think that's the trap we felt into in the past, which was to say, we've got a good idea, you know, we're just going to kind of draw up a new law and kind of legislate for this. I think policy making in the future has to be far more collaborative, um, far more social in its nature and in delivery. And again, that isn't a style of policy making that politicians or policymakers traditionally feel comfortable with. I mean, if I think about you know, the work I've done in Hodgkin, I serve the community with the highest, second highest unemployment in Britain, highest youth unemployment anywhere. Everything we've done in Hodge Hill has been by building a community of activists to do things together. You know, we've secured £167 million pounds of new investment in new schools, new housing, new libraries, new health centres. You know, you know, we've done well, but we did it together, not by me coming in and saying, I'm your MP, I'm going to kind of you know, deliver this for you. You kind of build an alliance and a team, and I think that's what we've got to do to answer the question that you pose. Finally, Benjamin, on, the, on the bishops. Um, Labour uh, and the bishops joined forces tonight to defeat the government. Um, we did that because we think it's vital that the benefit cap comes back to the House of Commons for further debate. Uh, we said in our manifesto it's an idea that we think will work in principle, but it sure as hell isn't going to work in practice if it's implemented in the way it's currently proposed. The DCLG, Department of Communities and Local Government, say that 20,000 people will be made homeless as a result of this. This morning, <coughs> Ian Duncan Smith published a new impact assessment that revised up by 35% the number of families that will be hit by this. We just do not think they've thought through what is going to happen to homelessness and we think they're going to dump that bill for sorting the problem out on council taxpayers all over Britain but mainly all over London. So if this is to be an idea that is not just nice in principle but a policy that works in practice they need to take on board some of the ideas that we're advancing. And I hope in the House of Commons uh, we can get that job done. Can I take two more questions and then I'm going to use my position by taking um, my fully one myself. Um, so, um, Lady Eats over there, please. And then um, I'll take you at the end of the road there. Hello. I'm actually feeling very angry at the moment because I think we're ignoring the elephant in the room and that is that for 30 years there hasn't been a living wage and the government did nothing about it and the money has gone into the pockets of multinationals. We are now being ruled by multinationals and we're talking about this as if this is a problem we can solve. We've got to really work hard to get that money out of those pockets of the multinationals and out of all the people who are actually not, never done an ordinary day's work in their life and have just moved into things like politics I'm sorry to say this. I'm sorry to say this, but David Cameron himself has never done a proper day's work in his life. They don't know what real life is about, and the multinationals are still taking more and more, and they're not going to give it up easily. And if Anora and Bevan could see what was happening in the health service, which is now on the brink of privatisation, which is going to make it more expensive, not less expensive, uh, well. I, I, I'm absolutely speechless. I'm sorry. What, I'm speaking what's your, out of what, What's your name, madam? My name is Eileen Smith. Thank you. 
I worked in, in the health service all my life, from a student nurse to a nurse manager. I know something about what's going on. It's being privatised. They're hiding it. It's the multinationals. United Health, that's been up for fraud in the United States five times, is here buying up our hospitals and our health centres. And we're keeping it quiet. We're not telling people what's going on. I was just wondering, um, it may be that your answer would be, as you said before, that because you see policy as being developed in a more communal way, you don't want to give specifics, and that was giving a, mm -hmm. that, that's a mistake. But um, one of the most specific things you said was in, in, in this speech was that you were looking for ideas of new ways to enforce respons the responsibility to work. I wonder just what sort of things you had in mind there. Yeah. And against that, also in, in the um, article you originally wrote, you talked about re-establishing the idea of something for something. Yeah. Now, what, are, what sort of something for something are you talking about there? Are you, are you talking about revitalizing social insurance, or are you thinking of some other, some other bargain? Yeah. Find a point there, and then we'll let them My name's Tim Nichols. I work for Child Poverty Action Group. We fight for welfare rights, and we believe in autonomy rather than dependency for benefit claimants. So I think we can agree with a lot of where you're coming from in terms of values, but I think when you take it, you make um, two big mistakes. Mm. One is that your something for something framing is actually playing into your opponent's framing at the moment, which is about driving a wedge between the working and the workless poor. That's the Labour Party base. You need a framing that reunites that base, because at the moment, you've lost the trust and the faith of the workless poor. And the second error is something that all the political parties are getting wrong in Westminster. And that's an obsession of carrots versus sticks in welfare to work. Both are wrong. Both are about extrinsic motivation. You need to focus on nurturing intrinsic motivation with welfare to work services. There's a, a tremendous body of evidence about this that gets completely ignored by all the parties. It just seems to be outside the paradigm that dominates in Westminster and nobody wants to know. But if you want to know more about that, very happy to show you that evidence. <laughs> Hire more economists. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, so I said, so just for the record, I started working at McDonald's, um, and then moved on to shelf uh, stacking in Tesco's. The argument I think you make about wages is, is, is absolutely at the heart of this debate because you know if you look at the, the biggest challenge in British political economy, it's probably true in European economies and certainly true in America. It's this problem of living standards and the divorce between what is happening for the wealthiest, 1% or 5%, and what is happening for everybody else. So if you think um, about what happened in Britain after 2003, 2004, what you saw in our economy happening is productivity went up, rates of profitability went up, worker share of national earnings went down, and companies didn't spend or invest the cash, they sat on it. So on UK balance sheets now, uh, there's something like, there's over 600 billion in cash that has just been piling up and piling up and piling up since about 2001 too. So here you've got a situation where companies are kind of squeezing profitability harder. They're taking the gains of productivity and workers are not getting 
a slice of the action. They're not getting a fair slice of the action. And that is why living standards are plateauing to such an extent. Now, there are basically three things you can do about that. You can increase wages, you can increase productivity and make sure productivity gains get translated into increased wages. You can free people to work the hours they might choose and you can target income transfers in a better way. So the point that you rely on, living wage, very, very important. I would add one to that, and that is the disgrace of gender pay gaps in this country. Yeah. So right now, you know, we have the number of people being forced to work part-time, it's going through the roof. I think it's the highest ever it's just reached. Three quarters of part-time workers in this country are women. 30 years on, after the Equal Pay Act, the pay gap between men and women in part-time work is 40%. And I can't prove this, but I bet you could lift just as many families out of poverty by fixing the gender pay gap as you could by implementing living wage. But what this government is doing right now is not strengthening the obligations on companies to report the gap in a man and a woman's pay. They're actually dismissing it. And I have to say, in a world where my daughter is going to earn 40% less than my son if they work part-time. That is a scandal, and we should be making it a major focus um, for political action. On, um, on Tim, on your point, I profoundly disagree with you. Um, I serve the constituency with the second highest unemployment in the country. I've served it you know, week in, week out for seven years. We cannot rebuild an alliance between workless people and working people unless working people feel they get more out than they put in, and right now they don't. Now, why is that? It's because what they need from the welfare state has profoundly changed from the days where we invented the welfare state. Right now, you don't get help skilling and reskilling for a new job. Right now, you don't get enough help with childcare. You sure as hell don't get any help with social care. You don't get enough help getting onto the housing ladder. You don't get a fair hand up on saving for the long term. And so when working people feel they're paying lots of money in and they're not getting anything out, then they're not going to say, you know what, we need more welfare state. They're going to say, you know what, I'm going to walk away from the welfare state. That is not how you build solidarity between those without work and those who are in work. And that isn't something I learned in Westminster. I learned that in the streets of my constituency. And so John, I mean, to kind of finish with your point really, I mean, the point about specifics is that, you know, we are three or four years away from an election, uh, still two, 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 three years away from an election. <coughs> my goal, I guess for this year is to try and make sure that we change the frame of this debate about welfare because of actually um, the points that Tim is making. I, I don't think that Labour does win when the debate is dominated by a very neoconservative analysis of pushing people into work by slashing their benefits, which is what the government is trying to do. Actually, I believe in supporting people who have needs and supporting people fulfil uh, their potential. That is why I gave up uh, being an entrepreneur and going into politics. But I think if you are to win political consent for that, if you are to win a majority for that, then you need to marry together rights and responsibilities. It's what most people in this country believe, and it's the way I think you get people to vote for sensible uh, welfare reform. So the idea we had at the last election was very simple, a jobs guarantee that said if you've been out of work for a couple of years, there would be a guaranteed job for you if you had been out of work for two years. A minimum wage job, at least, that was there for six months, so that people didn't get too far away from the labour market. Because we know that if people get too far away from the labour market, their chance of getting back into a job is diminished. I have one ward in my constituency that is one of the poorest in the country. 
If we raise the rate of employment in that world, we would bring in a hundred million pounds of extra wages each year. It's the biggest single thing you could do for the regeneration of the community I serve. No regeneration program on earth is going to match that. But getting people into jobs can. And that's why it's the starting point for our debate and our focus on how we put in front of the British people in 2015 a different plan of welfare reform to what we think is a regressive, reactionary welfare reform plan from this government. Thank you very much indeed. Um, well, you've promised us for the future um, something for something, but this evening we've certainly had uh, not just something, but a lot to think about. Thank you very much indeed for um, taking the time to come and see us, and um, maybe we will see and hear more about um, your ideas <coughs> as they develop, not just this year, but on the way through to 2015. Thank you very much indeed.